welcome to the 32nd episode of Foreign Correspondence Deeper into Hitchcock podcast. Uh, my name is Michał Oleszczyk and I'm joined as always by my co-host Sebastian Smolinski. Hello. Welcome again. Uh, we are continuing our series of uh, discussing all of uh, Alfred Hitchcock's films um, one by one. We are in mid 40s. Last time we discussed Spellbound, which was uh, Hitchcock's psychoanalytical thriller starring Ingrid Bergman. And we are continuing his 1940s very fortunate stride with another thriller starring Ingrid Bergman and co-starring Cary Grant and Claude Rains called Notorious. Notorious is, um, well, notorious, I would say. It's a film of great reputation, unlike Spellbound, for example, mm -hmm. which usually is maybe respected, but also a little bit mocked. Um, Notorious is definitely, for many scholars that we uh, consult in their books that they have written on Hitchcock and many materials, it's, it's usually regarded as one of Hitchcock's finest thrillers in practically every way, technically, mm -hmm. thematically. And we, we, will, we will try to discuss this very, very uh, dense, very mm -hmm. sensual, very complicated film uh, from a screenplay by Ben Hecht. Uh, we will try to discuss it today in two parts and um, we will start by discussing it with one another and as we speak actually in about 40 minutes from now we will connect via zoom with professor patrick keating who teaches film at uh, trinity university in san antonio texas and uh, he wrote a wonderful book called the dynamic frame camera movement in classical hollywood and also Hollywood Lightning, From the Silent Era to Film Noir. Uh, before we connect with Professor Keating and before I hand it over to Sebastian, just a brief note, we became fans of Patrick Keating's book a while ago, I would say probably two or three years ago, when it was first published. And for both of us, this was a revelatory book because Patrick Keating does a wonderful job of, uh, well, it's a work of academic scholarship, a historical scholarship and he does a wonderful job of putting a seemingly simple and innocuous issue like camera movement camera moving through space in a wonderful wonderful historical and aesthetic frame and we'll be curious to hear what he has to say about the gliding camera movements of Ted Tetzloff's camera in Notorious especially since this is a film that contains one of the signature, probably the most famous single take in Hitchcock's filmography involving a key, but we will discuss it later on. So, first of all, uh, Sebastian, when did you f see this film first? What was your initial reaction? And what is your reaction now after revisiting it? This is one of Hitchcock's films which I that I was watching when I was... 13 or 14, one of these probably, excuse all, all the listeners, excuse me for saying that, probably one of the pirated copies that I managed to obtain when I was a teenager in Poland. We had some official DVD issues of Hitchcock's film at that time, but still I was voraciously looking for everything that was there. So yes, yeah, so my, my first experience with Notorious, uh, early 2000s probably, and that was the period when I was discovering uh, what does it feel to really immerse oneself in classical Hollywood? Uh, so I definitely uh, connected 
yes, with my passion to Hitchcock, but also with my education uh, in classical Hollywood. It was really one of these movies that showed me that you can really um, enter some very exciting territory that is gone by now. I mean, they don't make movies like that anymore. I felt that at the time, but still I was experiencing it on, on, a, on a small uh, computer screen. Then I had the chance to watch it on a, on a big screen at Cleveland Cinematheque a few years ago. That was also an amazing screening uh, from a you know digital copy. So uh, that was, I experienced this film as I should have. But now coming back to it, I, I, I have some different feelings. I didn't, I wasn't as much invested emotionally in these first two screenings uh, when I was a teenager and, and at Cleveland Cinematheque. But now I think it's really great to come back to this film. I really love it. But I think problematic, the, the problematic fact is that it's so universally loved that you almost feel like you have the need maybe to, to say, no, it's not that perfect. No, it's not as good. I'm not as crazy about it. I would like to be a, a bit of a contrarian in this case, but I, I, I simply cannot. I, I was really happy to come back to it, to also watch it with uh, Drew Casper's um, expert commentary. Uh, I, I watched several scenes and I highly recommend this, this version because he's not only extremely knowledgeable, he's one of the most respected film professors in the United States, but he's also very passionate uh, about <laughs> and, movies. Which and I is think he's awesome. uh, the Alfred Hitchcock professor. Yes, yes, that's right. Alma and Alfred, I think uh, that's, that's the name of this chair, Alma and Alfred. Uh, Hitchcock professor at uh, University of Southern California, right? Mm, I, think. I think so. So, so yes, yeah, so definitely high point for me. I agree with many statements which say that, you know, it's, it's a key Hitchcock film for this period. But I also like to think that I have some kind of personal relationship to it. We'll mm. see uh, during our conversation if we really can catch that. W what about you? What's your <laughs> story with Notorious? Uh, well, my story with Notorious is that uh, in, I guess, early 2000s, when uh, Amazon.co.uk started delivering to Poland, <laughs> I ordered a copy of this film on VHS, um, and I watched it on VHS um, in English. I was about 18, 19 years old, and uh, I, I guess I liked it, but I don't think I really understood it. I definitely... I didn't understand the mm, romantic entanglement of the film. It's very, I think it's a very adult film in a way. Last time we made fun a little bit of uh, Spellbound, saying that, you yes. know, it, it passed as uh, uh, adult entertainment in 1945, but from today's perspective, it's really naive, right? It is really, really almost uh, trashy. And you cannot say that about Notorious. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the material, the, the story, um, especially the relationship in the triangle between um, the Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman character, Alicia, uh, Cary Grant's character, Devlin, and uh, Alexander Sebastian, played by uh, Claude Rains, I, I think this is a genuinely complicated relationship. So you cannot say, oh, this is like a campy entertainment. No, it's actually, I think now that I'm an adult, I, I see it in a more adult Way. I also saw it projected digitally at BFI South Bank once, wow. and uh, I was hoping actually that that screening would be uh, mm -hmm. on film, but it was it was digital. Mm -hmm. Still, it was a wonderful experience because when you are watching a Hitchcock film in a room full of people, uh, first of all you notice how relatively quiet this film is because many many scenes are without music, in, including the famous kissing scene, which is completely without music. 
and also it was it's always interesting to see how people react to the situation of tension and so it was it was a nice screening but overall i would say that the stocks of the film went up in my uh, case I, th I think now i would say yes it, uh, now i understand mm -hmm. why people say that it's such a seminal hitchcock film and also i have to say because this film benefits from one of the most lavish criterion um uh, packages ever mm -hmm. uh, which is really in incredible there are two commentaries many many extras uh, one of the best extras that i ever saw was the extra with david bordwell mm. who analyzes oh, yes. the <laughs> the editing structure of the film and i think this is the half hour that really establishes david bordwell as the like superman of <laughs> of a film analysis especially the, his analysis of the of the descent from the stairs at the end when when they are walking down the stairs I th and he calls it like he Hitchcock's Odessa steps. Odessa steps. <laughs> it's uh, mind-boggling. I mean, it's it's amazing. So you should see it if if you if you watch just one extra, uh, you know, connected with this film. Uh, I would suggest the um, David Bordwell essay. Oh, definitely. So uh, to maybe join these two recommendations, watch first half an hour of Notorious with Drew Casper. Uh, listen which to the is, way he, which is not on the criterion yes that's by the not way. the criterion that's, that's another, the other edition <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, listen to the way he introduces the themes characters he does it in an amazing way you can learn a lot about watching movies and then watch uh, David the, the the extra with David Bordwell it's it's really great yes mm -hmm. but um so, so maybe... before before we discuss just because, uh, what the film is about so the film is an espionage tale which is very timely and topical the year is 1946 the, the year of the premiere is 1946 mm -hmm. and the film takes place in 1946 and this time it's not some imagined kingdom of Ruritania <laughs> it's actually United States we start in Miami Florida we know that the war has ended we know that there is a question of espionage of Nazi espionage in the United States and Alicia's uh, father was actually convicted as a Nazi spy um, she is approached by a special agent the name cia is not mentioned or well it's not yet fully established but the name fbi even is not mm -hmm. mentioned uh, it's just a, a secret agent and basically he makes her an offer you know maybe you will become a spy for the government you can use some connections from your father's life we know that you are loyal from to the united states we have some recordings to prove it uh, but would you like to be a spy even if it entails some sexual espionage matahari uh, uh, style and she says yes the only thing that she doesn't know is a that she will fall in love with devlin who is making this offer and that a man that she will be spying upon would actually be her former lover alexander sebastian played by claude rains so she is sort of caught between those two men with a very complicated net of feelings uh, and she is actually marrying uh, Sebastian, uh, which makes things even more complicated. And the rest is simply this uh, espionage story with a bottle of champagne or wine uh, filled with uranium at its very center. And we will definitely discuss the scene with the bottle being uncovered in the wine cellar, which I have to say is also one of the best sequences in Hitchcock. Absolutely. The, the party scene and will go but this is an espionage story so and Ingrid Bergman I have to say the first thing Ingrid Bergman is wonderful in this film 
What, the, what do you agree? <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was one of my, you know, one of the three points I want to make. Yes, I I think as the year years pass, uh, our gradual appreciation of uh, Hollywood performances grows somehow. Mm. I think I think there was this period in. Uh, Hitchcock reception and film studies when you were focusing on on technique. This is something that David Bordwell does, but he also mentions, you know, the quality and the skills of performances. But as the years pass, you know, you may ask question, why do we love Notorious so much? Of course, it's perfect in so many respects, but also at the core of it, there is Ingrid Bergman's amazing performance. Uh, performance. So this is something absolutely unique. But I think, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you may you may ask the question why why this film is you know such a um, pinnacle of, of Hitchcock's 1940s career why particularly this film and of course I think there are several questions I'm usually the guy who introduces like this production studies trivia and stuff like that so definitely uh, one of the reasons is that it was the first production that Hitchcock was relatively um, free to produce to, to manage um, it's always it's basically I think Hitchcock and Selznick story, it's, it's a very funny story. I would like to watch a comedy, <laughs> you know, about their collaboration because uh, for half of the time, Selznick was deep uh, deep into these very difficult, time-consuming and money-consuming projects, like Gone with the Wind, right? Uh, now, Duel in the Sun, uh, at the time when Hitchcock was, was making Notorious, right? So Selznick is somewhere there, you know, he's, of course... Uh, micromanaging everything, writing memos, trying to, you know, put his stamp on everything, but he, he cannot do that. So Hitchcock is relatively free to p- pursue his vision and his collaborators. So that's, you know, one of the reasons. Is it really? Is it, is it, uh, what do you think? Is it uh, one of the reasons why Notorious is, feels so complete that Hitchcock was relatively free? Because that's, that would kind of point us towards the, you know, this, uh, Auteur theory, right? I mean, he's now he can be an auteur. Do you mm-hmm, agree with that? Mm-hmm. I think so. I mean, if you look at the evidence in the Patrick McGilligan biography and also uh, many other materials, you can see the story of Hitchcock and Selznick basically is a story of uh, an incredibly creative artist who had a very supportive producer back in the back, back in the UK, in the person of Michael Balcon. Mm-hmm who suddenly when he goes to, comes to the States, he crashes against this iceberg of a producer who is very difficult, right? Who is very demanding, who uh, basically, you know, he's a contrarian, he mm. fights for his own vision of films and Hitchcock really needs to fight against him. And here Hitchcock is still on contract, um, you know, he's bound by the contract for, to Selznick, but he is working for RKO and it's almost like he's like a producer on the film. So he has much creative freedom. And before we see another biopic of Hitchcock, Mm -hmm. I I love the idea of, you know, a Selznick-Hitchcock biopic. Only a comedy, please. Yes, uh, (laughs) Selznick played by Leif Schreiber and uh, (laughs) Hitchcock played by Paul Walter Hauser, for example. Uh, But uh, before we see that, uh, I I would say that, yes, I can imagine that here Hitchcock finally doesn't Mm -hmm. have this, you know, this this figure of Selznick, you know, looking through his shoulder every second and saying, no, 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 you cannot do this, you have to do that. So, and yes, I, I think, you know, uh, you know, this, even when you look at Spellbound and this film, you know, you can tell that something is very different, you mm-hmm. know, something is mm-hmm. really, really different. And I wouldn't call it naivete, that's not the, but simply, I think if you look at Duel at the Sun, <laughs> Duel in the Sun, Selznick had this, let's say, florid side yes, to him. That yes. was very, very over the top. It was bolder, borderline vulgar. It was, you know, 
baroque in the worst possible sense. Hitchcock can be extremely uh, refined and he can be also close to the top, but he's never really over the top. You know, mm -hmm. he has this taste that really uh, has this cup of taste that um, restrains him <laughs> several. And uh, this film, I think, is a work of great taste because, mm -hmm. um, I mean, when you look at every single detail, the, you know, the, the Edith Head's costumes, costumes you know, and the, the zebra uh, costume that um, Ingrid Bergman wears during the early party scene and all of the costumes, really. And when you look at the meticulous framing, and we'll definitely discuss mm -hmm. it in a second, mm -hmm. but uh, with Professor Keating, but this is a work of such intimacy. The camera is so close to the characters for many, many scenes. You know, you can see them very close. The famous kissing scene that is, you know, like, it's like uh, like almost like a joke now that everybody says that yes he was trying to surpass the Hayes mm -hmm. code because uh, there was a time limit on the kisses so he broke up one long kiss into you know like myriad little pecks and kisses and nibbles so yes and but but again no music in the background there's this gliding camera movement it's a single take I think Loki lightning um, in one in the other balcony scene right? and you are and you are so close to them you, you and uh, they also they speak very gently and uh, I uh, you know when you when you listen to this film they they don't really shout they you know they speak very gently it's you know high manners uh, uh, throughout I would say uh, may, maybe it changes a little bit towards the end but yes I think this is this is a work of tremendous taste and Ingrid Bergman again I think she should have been awarded an Academy Award for for this for this performance because she's uh, sensuous she plays against type at that time she was fresh mm -hmm. from Casablanca just as Claude Rains was and you know she is not a damsel in distress she's a complicated woman sexually liberated woman mm -hmm who enters a very dangerous situation and uh, is playing multiple sex games, but not in a predatory way, but in a very vulnerable way. She puts herself out there for the love of Devlin, whom she knows that he cannot really reciprocate her feelings because he's very twisted, <laughs> I would say. So this is a complex character. And, uh, you know, if, if this movie was remade years later, I would say that an actress like maybe Kathleen Turner mm -hmm. could play, mm -hmm. play this, this role. So I, I'm amazed just by, by how, how complex this film is. It's, it's a very, very complex film. And, and if you remember that Ben Hecht was actually a journalist and he was, you know, of course, he's a legendary screenwriter, but he wanted to comment on contemporary events, right? Bomb in Hiroshima just went off. It was immediately after the war. Nobody knew exactly where the war will, world will, will go. And here, you know, the issue of atomic bombs, of Nazis in in the U.S. This is the time when U.S. employs many Nazis, actually, because, you know, they invite them, like Professor Werner von Braun, to work for them. So it's a very, very, very morally, mm -hmm. you know, uh, shifty ground. And uh, yes, I, I think it's this is this is a masterpiece of complexities. This film. So this is this is one thing uh, I totally agree with you. The other thing would be time simply time i think it's one of these rare occasions in hitchcock filmography up to that point uh, as you can see you know just think about it he's he's been making movies for i mean directing movies for 19 years 20 years right it's like let's say notorious marks his 20th anniversary as a director and what 32 33 feature films very fast paced but notorious starts to be developed 1944 
uh, then it's languishing a bit there are rewrites even i think clifford odets joins party for him for, for for a short time but they don't i think he didn't improve the script much so you know the the production is postponed they have a lot of time to refine the script so i think that's also one of the reasons why it works so well and as you mentioned uh Notorious is actually surprisingly timely, was surprisingly timely, because at the time, at least if we believe in these fascinating stories of Hecht and Hitchcock visiting um, physicists in, in 1945, asking about atomic bomb, and the physicists saying, don't, don't speak that word, it's a, you know, national uh, secret, no, you know, it was before Hiroshima, they, so... That's one of the reasons why Selznick didn't want to do it. That it was so absurd, you know, a, a movie with a MacGuffin that is centered around some uranium ore and supposed bomb, which doesn't exist yet in, you know, worldwide consciousness. And then suddenly uh, the movie gets made and we have we have this terrible event which actually ends World War II. And the movie is, is, is suddenly uh, timely. But of course, what is so fascinating is that it's not really that important, right? That's also the, the question of what is the what is the center of Notorious. Not many people will say that, let's say, that the plot about the Nazis itself is the center, right? But I, I always get kicks from Nazis on screen. I just like uh, the sub boys from Brazil is one of my mm. gu gu guilty pleasures. <laughs> and of course, this movie is exactly about boys who are in Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, Nazis or ex-Nazis, whatever, I think they're let's say, actively Nazis. So that's another reason that this movie has, has been devel was developed for such a long period of time that it can get refined and perfected and is very tasty, uh, full, of, full of taste. Mm -hmm. And the, the other thing you mentioned, the music, exactly, that uh, it's a quiet movie. It's also a movie which has very few action scenes, almost not at all. You know, the, probably the, 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 the most um, thrilling s scene in conventional sense is the, you know, the, the, the first scene when they are driving the car, right? And that's one of the rare scenes. It operates on a totally different level of, you know, this like aesthetic choices, glances, people looking at each other, uh, pieces of dialogue which are very piercing. And I think uh, for me, why this movie works so well when I'm 30 and maybe I didn't get it when I was 14 is this masochism you know which is inherent in this relationship and it's, it's really it's still hurting uh, and that's i think amazing but coming back to, to what you mentioned about the intimacy that of course is the the center of the famous uh, kissing scene uh, i found this you know fascinating observation about hitchcock's use of rear uh, projections mm -hmm. uh, which of course takes uh, you don't take anything at face value when you discuss hitchcock you always want to go deeper and in this sense, there is this theory that his rear projections, for example, in Notorious, are not perfect precisely because he wants us to focus just on this couple. He wants us to, you know, be with them, to be a third party, you know, to the two of them, to feel this intimacy. And that's why when they are sitting at a cafe in Brazil, you know, you have this fuzzy, out-of-focus rear projection, which is obviously artificial. Right. Uh, by the way, this, the scenes in, in Brazil were shot by Greg Tolan, apparently. Uh, but this is the, let's say, you can say on one hand, when contemporary viewers, maybe were, if our students were watching this film, they would say, oh, this rear projection is just terrible. It's so fake. I mean, how can I enter these relationships uh, if on an aesthetic level it doesn't convince me? But of course, the argument is that it's precisely the point, uh, this level of artificiality, which is br brings us closer to these performances. You focus entirely on Ingrid Bergman's face and body and uh, Cary Grant's body. Uh, what I think also is beautiful for me and also a bit scary in this film is that they 
they don't really listen to each other's bodies, however mm. contrived this sounds, mm. but much of the masochism in this film is focused uh, on the fact that they they really just listen to each other. They listen to what they are saying, but they're not reading each other's bodies. Mm. But of course we do as viewers, right? We as viewers, we know that Cary Grant is very ambiguous uh, about what he should do. Should he allow her to you know, go to Sebastian or not, right? We realize that, but in this language of love that they are sharing, or maybe pre-love, or maybe language of falling in love, Ingrid Bergman doesn't want to see it, or is, he just cannot see it. So, you know, there are all these levels of um, bodily or emotional uh, dimensions, I think, in this film, which mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I find very striking and uh, beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 I agree. And uh, the point about um, the backgrounds and the reprojection is wonderful. It also, it's developed in another extra on, on the Criterion Disc, when I think John, John Bailey speaks, mm, speaks mm -hmm. about this. Yeah, I, I always wonder. I don't know. Like, mm, it, it, had someone did this today, you know, like uh, shot a scene of lovers speaking, and there would be like a back projection, fuzzy back projection in the background. You would say, it's this is an avant-garde film. Mm -hmm. You know, it's mm -hmm. not, it's not even like a real film. Late um, Alain René, for example. Um, yeah, late <laughs> Alain René. So, and here you sort of accept it. Um, I, I think yes, that the younger viewers are probably more, you know, skeptical about it because. Uh, I think this uh, sort of dogma of Netflix uh, total visibility, you know, that everything has to be sharp in focus, colorful, well lit, usually. Well lit, uh, it just m turns people to, you know, expecting this fake hyper realism. Everything suddenly is like, like a photo wallpaper, you know, that that's sharp. But uh, yes, I, I fully I fully agree, and I, I think that you know I what I didn't realize. Uh, someone also pointed it out uh, that Cary Grant is almost cast against type because mm -hmm. he's not this debonair, witty you know gentleman. He's really much of a darker figure. You know he when he slaps her in the car, but also just by being so, you know commit commitment phobic on one way, and then you know like like treating her so deceitfully like uh, or, or like too um, it's like he's uh, two-faced because mm -hmm. on one hand he pushes her into the situation on another he is con uh, he holds her in contempt the more she gets into the situation you know having being married to Claude Rains is fantastic news for the inquiry you know because she as a spy she just landed the biggest success you know he gives her full confidence but so she is succeeding exactly in the task that Devlin uh, hired her for. But as she is succeeding so brilliantly, he turns on this contempt, the sexual contempt, saying that, you know, basically like slut shaming her, you know, ah, so this is who you really are. So this is an impossible, it's impossible situation. It's like the, the, the ultimate mixed message, you know, be a great spy. But, but, you know, don't employ mm. your sexuality in it or employ it only to the extent that I allow you to. This is, it's a horribly uh, um, sort of like a sadistic, I, I think, uh, trope in this um, Cary Grant character. And somebody, I don't remember who it was, pointed out that, you know, okay, the movie ends with them, you know, going away, but probably this will be a terrible mm -hmm. relationship, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That, you mm -hmm. know, you can imagine like two days later, as you know, when she, purges the poison from her system she's been poisoned for the last quarter of an hour um 
you know, what what will be the first thing that he tells her? You know, like, will I, I I can imagine he's saying something horrible to her? You know, like like so, did you enjoy it? <laughs> you know, like being in this Nazi's house. You know, you can you can imagine the the toxicity. Mm-hmm. And twenty mm-hmm. years later, there will be like this embittered sadomasochistic couple in Ulrich Seidel film, you know, basically. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a very um, complex film that touches on ugly feelings, I would say. And we know that Hitchcock had those ugly feelings. We, we all have ugly feelings, but we know that he, you know, sublimated them a lot. In later films, they will come out more. But here, it's like this Im- impossible sexual riddle you know like who are those two people in relationship to Mm -hmm. one another you know how they should relate you know i mean devlin is attracted to her because she's so open in a way about her sexuality she's very modern on the other hand as soon as she becomes too much in power of her sexuality he you know retreats and shames her you know and she is also i think quite ambiguous in all of this you know she craves domesticity you know she makes this chicken and you know serves dinner but on the other hand she is a spy you know (laughs) when somebody is a spy i think there's always something strange in that so yeah it's um adult entertainment in the good sense uh, i would say exactly and there are many symmetries of course as professor bordwell uh, enumerates them Uh, one which i found striking and i think rarely discussed for me that the two balcony scenes the way they complement each other this is this is precisely that um, the first one is this famous kiss and pre- preparation of food, right? No, no, talking about food, right? The, the food is being prepared in that second scene, but this is a lovely... Will st- we eat with the fingers? Like, will we use plates? <laughs> you know, what are you yeah. envisioning here? You know, like eating the, the, you know, the chicken without plates in bed? Like, what's, yeah. what's going the, on? The, you know? Food is in many ways equated with, with sex in Hitchcock mm-hmm. universe. So, so yeah, I, hopefully we'll explore it. Um, as well, uh, but yeah, this is this is a great scene, and uh, no doubt. But then there is like this huge cut, emotional cut in this relationship. When Cary Grant's, he just goes. There is this one short scene when he's sp- speaking with his superiors, and then he gets the news what her mission will be, and then he's coming back. It's like what few hours passed, I mm-hmm. think, between one event and the other in in terms of like the time of the action. But the, the scene is completely different because he has to be different because of the expectations that are put on him. But this is striking uh, in many other movies, especially Hollywood movies of the time, would had some kind of gradual change in their relationship or kind of some kind of montage or anything that would you know indicate this changing temperature of emotions. Not here, right? Is is that the few hours later he's like super cold, no nuzzling, no you know. Um, humorous pieces of dialogue just no, very he cold f- freezes he's like f- freezing yes. cold and th- this is also like you know he's accessible one minute then he pulls back exactly. it's like the today you would say you know it's like like almost like an emotional violence you know that mm-hmm. he pulls her in and then suddenly he's you know you, you can imagine like domestic violence going on in that uh, in that relationship which is again the fantastic cast i think the the the, the really the the element that makes it great with all the elements that are there, <laughs> is the but 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 it's casting of Claude Rains because if if that character was cast differently, I think Clifton Webb was uh, considered, that would be an entirely different film, because if that uh, for example if Clifton Webb you know had Clifton Webb play this character, you wouldn't be so invested into this like mm-hmm. he would be 
like in Laura, right? He would be the the, the Otopreminger Laura. He would be this older man, you know, with with ambiguous sexuality, but also um, capable of appreciating woman's beauty and blah blah blah. But Claude Rains is is manly and he's very delicate. He has all the qualities, the good qualities that Devlin doesn't have. He's genuinely caring. He he is a good husband. He's a good husband material, despite being the, the Nazi, right? Uh, that's not that important yeah. here. <laughs> but, but but you look at him and say yes, like like Alicia could be happy with him. He's he's attentive to her, and he he even stands up to his mother to protect Alicia, right? And to give her the full uh, prerogatives of the lady of the house by giving her the famous Unica key. But um, and so I, you know. Everybody would say, like, yes, Claude Rains is the man for you, except that he's a Nazi. So, you know, you really should be with Harry Grant because he's the American agent. But uh, emotionally, this equation definitely pulls you towards saying that, yes, Claude Rains probably is the be better husband. And that, that would be the case with Clifton Webb. I mean, you wouldn't care. I mean, mm -hmm. he, you, you might have had some campy pr pleasure from watching him, but not this kind of affection, you know, that Claude Rains, who, are, after all, played an angel in... Uh, uh, here comes Mr. Jordan. I mean, he played an angel for a reason because he's simply so affable and trustworthy, and everybody likes him in Casablanca. He's such a great guy, you know, in uh, Casablanca. Exactly. So uh, I think approximately 70% of our sympathy towards Cary Grant is, of course, based on his previous performances. Being so. Cary Grant. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's precisely the, the one of these films that you cannot really. Uh, try to read it in vacuum you know it's it's a great performance it's self-sufficient in many ways but also it's part of a dialogue right of, of a, let's say hollywood dialogue about Cary grant so i think yeah i totally agree with you um i found this nice comment i mean i think it's mcgilligan's comment that um claude rains felt a bit vulnerable about the fact that he was you know aging uh, getting old and also of course he wasn't the, the tallest of the actors so there are like reasons the small elements of vulnerability which play out great and once again when you look at previous Hitchcock movies about uh, his propaganda movies you see it's never that simple right and it's one of the portrayals of this uh, of a Nazi that we are we can really relate to in mm -hmm. in some way so of course it's perverse as you mentioned the ending is also perverse so Hitchcock is providing maybe a bit like we could say uh, Douglas Sirk, right? Providing mm. this happy ending, which really, on this ironic level, is not happy at all, right? Because one of our favorite characters in the movie will just will die, like probably within a few hours. Yes, and I uh, before we connect with Professor Keating, I would say that uh, it will be interesting to see how Douglas Sirk would have uh, directed this material, because it is a Douglas Sirk kind of film, you know, with Alicia driving drunkenly at the beginning. You can see her, like, you know, driving. Written uh, it'll in be, the wind. It will be written in the wind. It will be, you know, Robert Stack could play Devlin and, you know, Rock Hudson could play, or I, I don't know. Anyhow, that, that could be a Douglas Sirk film. I would say that the only thing that really dated uh, badly, well, Maybe not badly, but it dated. It's the mad mother character, mm -hmm. Leopoldine Constantine, uh, because uh, she's a little bit over the top as this as mm -hmm. this bad mother. You know, like the the, the the when I remember that at the screening at BFI, there was just one moment when people laughed, and it wasn't a planned laughter. Mm -hmm. When when she um, lights up a cigarette, you know, mm -hmm. she learns that mm -hmm. uh, Alicia is the American spy, and she doesn't say anything. She just very it's a long long moment like pro prolonged moment that she lights the cigarette 
and people are laughing you know like that's the edipal mother you know basically uh, with the with this phallic you know symbol <laughs> she's but, the but, man in the but family. also the 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 mm. scene in which she is introduced is also borderline over the top as as when it comes to notorious i mean there's a very long take when she descends the stairs i i think it's a great shot but it's uh, and i like the comment by i think steven decatz the author uh, that it's her predatory mode because she's not blinking. She's not blinking. So, you know, it, it's great, but probably when you watch it with the audience, which is more attuned to irony and this uh, overacting and so on, it, it may be too much. I didn't feel it that way watching just with my, with my wife, just watching the two of mm -hmm. us. But certainly, I think that the ultimate test of such movies is watching it with, with yes, a large I love audience. The, I love the comment about her not blinking. And I would say that, you know, Norman Bates's mother also doesn't blink when we see her <laughs> in Psycho, you know, we see those gaping holes of, of eyes and I think it's her. I think this is exactly the mother, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. this is uh, this is the same woman uh, that we see, you know, um, uh, not literally, but, uh, you know, the, this is exactly the mother that the son is yelling at and you're saying, you know, give me back my life. It's just that, you know, Norman Bates uh, went one step further than <laughs> Claude Rains and you know but both had uh, very interesting sellers so. uh, exactly and um, I did a bit of research to see if we can somehow connect uh, this mother not which with Hitchcock's mother or some kind of um, autobiographical reading of Hitchcock's work but with Nazis in general the sexuality of Nazis and so on and of course there's this famous book which has like 900 pages male fantasies uh, fantasies by Klaus Tevelite, a German author, who analyzes uh, sexuality of Nazis, and there is just a very short subchapter about mothers. And mm. mothers really weren't that important for Nazis. Of course, they were some point of reference, sometimes sheltering them from demanding fathers, sometimes also being uh, themselves in need of protection or something when they were turning into mothers that were maybe had, had some sexual ideas that son, sons didn't approve. So, of course, there was this quasi Freudian element, but basically we don't have a huge literature on mothers in mm. um, in terms of Nazis, which again sh shows you that, you know, maybe it's not, it wasn't an anthropological study of Nazis, definitely. That yeah. was some kind yeah. of a concept, an but idea, it's a which worked mother. great. It's a Hitchcock yes. mother first and Nazi mother second. Okay, let's try to connect with Professor Kitty. Hello. Hi. Oh, hello. Hi. <laughs> Hi. That's cool. Very good to see you. Very uh, thank you so much for for doing this. We, we really this is Sebastian. I'm Michal. This is Sebastian. <laughs> so first first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to uh, connect with us to meet us. Uh, as I mentioned, we are truly really fans of your books, and this approach to movies is really inspiring for us. Uh, so you know, even you, you have readers in Poland, you know, of <laughs> all places as well. Uh, great, great. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. Thank you. Uh, and I should say, I've I've listened to some of the podcasts already, uh, oh, and I'm really okay. enjoying them. Yeah, I listened <laughs> to you. Sabotage, and then I listened to the one with uh, uh, the Lady Vanishes. Ah, oh, Lady Vanishes. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you. Great. Thank you, which, yeah. Jennifer. Okay, so we will uh, we'll simply start by asking our first question, and then we'll see how the conversation goes. So, Sebastian. So the direct reason that we you know, decided to try to approach you was, of course, the cover of your of your latest book. Uh, so we can see on that cover, we can see the, the, the famous production steel from Notorious uh, with, I think, one of these uh, men is Ted 
Ted Tetzlaff, right, the, the director of cinematography on Notorious, and of course we see Ingrid Bergman on the left. Yeah, I, I have it here. So uh, why that image? I mean, I, I'm sure there were many reasons, but maybe let's start with that because it's maybe important for our listeners. Yeah, I, uh, I it's it's such a beautiful image, <laughs> um, and I, I I like how the image really kind of emphasizes maybe like the collaborative way of filmmaking um you know so you've got sort of multiple people kind of working with with the camera uh and then it also includes Ingrid Bergman uh and how the actor also has to be aware of where the camera is uh and so that was one of the themes in the book uh I uh, I thought was that it it it, it takes a lot of people uh, to to move the camera. It's both something that the director, of course, is um, you know deeply involved in, um, uh, but the director has to coordinate so many other people uh, for a, a great shot uh, to work. Uh, and then, uh, so that's one reason. And then I guess the second reason is um, another major theme of the book is the idea of of storytelling as revelation and concealment. Uh, uh, you know, I, I thought a lot in the book about, you know, the, the idea of, is the camera ever omniscient? Uh, um, and this, that particular shot seems like an interesting test case because, because there is in some sense, it's kind of like this, this, you know, godlike perspective, um, you know, and then it actually zeroes in on the crucial detail. Uh, so there is, there is something omniscient about that idea. Uh, but at the same time, the way the shot actually unfolds uh, as you're watching it, you don't feel uh, as if you know everything. Um, it, it actually engages in, in a kind of, you know, mechanics of surprise, you know, more than, uh, um, more than you might expect. Uh, uh, because we, you know, last time we saw the key, she was kicking it under the table. So we don't quite know where the key is. Um, we don't exactly know where the camera is heading as it's moving downwards. Uh, so it's actually a kind of great surprise that, oh, she really does have the key and there it is right in, in her hands. I also, I, uh, obviously we both love both the shot and the film and the still, the production still. Uh, today we are discussing not Notorious in our ongoing cycle. Uh, what, what I love, again, both about the shot and about the still, is that it really makes you think about camera as a tool of scrutiny of the body, basically, because we, we as you said, we don't know where the camera will end as the shot begins. We see uh, the spacious hall, we see many people moving around, bodies, you know, in free motion, and we, we don't really know that what we will end up looking at will be this tiny, tiny, you know, fragment of the palm of the hand. And also I think from the actress's point of view, she's still acting but she's she's not acting with this with this stern look that we see here this won't be revealed to the viewer she is acting literally with her hand you know fidgeting this this key so i i think you know that it's incredible how the camera turns from this sort of godlike you know very very wide ranging eye to something that scrutinizes the body in every single microscopic motion and uh, i i would like to ask you specifically about this shot, but also about Notorious in uh, in general. Is this the film that you would say 
that uh, epitomizes Hitchcock at some specific point in his career, F speaking from, from, from the perspective of cinematography. Do, uh, do you see it as a pinnacle of some phase or, or is it maybe simply a typical Hitchcock film, period? Like, where would you place the visual style of the film in, in Hitchcock's oeuvre? Yeah, I'm, uh, well, first I'm just kind of thinking of this idea of the scrutiny of the body and, mm -hmm. and I, I think that really fits for Notorious. It certainly fits for this shot. I'm also thinking of that other shot where, uh, you know, that kiss uh, <laughs> where the camera is in close up and then they walk all the way from the balcony to uh, inside the space and they're just kept in tight, tight close up uh, for, for the entire time. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that maybe kind of develops this idea of the scrutiny of the body, specifically the scrutiny of, of their faces. Um, and maybe there's even the idea, that idea planted in that not quite opening scene, but that, that party scene where we first see Cary Grant and we were stuck looking at the back of his head. Uh, uh, that maybe introduces this idea of, of scrutiny because, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we probably know it's Cary Grant and yet, we, you know, we want to get a better view of him and yet we're denied this view of him. Um, and yet she clearly does have a view of him and is very interested uh, mm -hmm. in, in his face. And also of the hair that gets into her eyes, right? <laughs> at, at one point, at one point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 yeah, so so um, uh, so that seems like an idea that's that's uh, planted early in the film and and developed uh, throughout. Um, I do think in his career um, in the 1940s, uh, a number of filmmakers were thinking of of the idea of of representing subjective experience on film and and the idea of of point of view shots. Uh, and he's certainly playing with that, I mean, throughout his entire career. Uh, 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 but I think he's, he's, he's very much associated with that in Hollywood's eyes, uh, that, that Hitchcock is, I think, kind of the leader uh, of this trend. Uh, and so I do quote um, some of the articles that appear in American Cinematographer uh, around this time, 46, 47, often written by Herb Lightman, which, which are commenting on, on subjectivity as a trend uh, in, in Hollywood. And, and most of his examples are, are from Hitchcock. So, so I, I, I do think this is one of his, one of his films where he's, he's exploring this idea of, of using the camera to represent a character's point of view. Um, but of course, he's never going to go as far as something like Lady in the Lake. Uh, I mean, he, I think he already correctly sees that that could be a dead end uh, and, and does not uh, uh, go, go down that path. Um, and, and to go to the, you know, the, the famous overhead shot, um, you know, and, th and, and that's an example of, of a shot that is, is not a point of view shot. Um, you know, it's 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 like here's this view that absolutely nobody has, um, and yet, you know, it has a subjective quality in the sense that 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 you know she's she's in the party, she's pretending to be thinking about the party, but she's not thinking about the party. <laughs> she's thinking about what's in her hands. Uh, um, so in that sense, the uh, the movement of the shot is kind of echoing uh, what's mm -hmm. going. Head. So uh, I have a trick question based on the, uh, you know, being familiar with your books. So 
Uh, I've read the dynamic frame first. And of course, the real heroes of your story are cinematographers and the journal, American cinematographer. But of course, Hitchcock and Wells, I would say, especially maybe Preminger as well, uh, are also important uh, protagonists, let's say, of this story. Uh, and you describe beautifully, you know, the ways, uh, the ways in which Hitchcock was blocking actors in Rebecca. Uh, you describe Notorious and Rear Window and so on. But then I turn to your book about Hollywood lighting. And there, Hitchcock is not such an important character. Of course, I guess one of the reasons was that when you're focusing on 20s and 30s, he's not in Hollywood, of course. So he's not making Hollywood movies at the time. Uh, but basically, do you think he was more important as a person planning camera movements than as a person designing lighting? What do you think about, you know, Hitchcock as a, you know, director concerned with lighting? What, what do you... What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I, it more stems from a just a kind of general, um, you know, just sort of shorthand assumption I make, which I think works most of the time, but not all the time, uh, which is I'm inclined to say cinematographers are more responsible for lighting and that directors are more responsible for, for mm. camera. Um, you know, I... I I do think that a number of directors I've seen in interviews um, would would agree with that. Um, and I think a number of cinematographers in interviews would agree with that. It is a shorthand. So, you know, I'm sure it doesn't apply in all cases. Uh, I would imagine Hitchcock being the visual thinker that he is, is, is going to be, you know, controlling the lighting more uh, than, than your average uh, director will. Uh, uh, but, but I do think that the two books ended up going in that direction, just sort of starting from that, that shorthand assumption, uh, that the, the Hollywood lighting book is really a book about cinematographers and then, yeah, the main players in that, you know, uh, um, John F. Seitz and, uh, William Daniels and James Wong Howe, uh, end up being some of the recurring figures in that book. Uh, and then in the dynamic frame, um, yeah, it's it's you know Murnau uh, and and Hitchcock and Wells uh, end up being the crucial figures uh, in, in that book. Um, uh, now, now as for uh, lighting in Hitchcock, uh, I can say I'm working on a book about uh, uh, lighting in film noir, mm. uh, and so I'm I'm hoping to have a chapter on Strangers on a Train. Mm. Uh, uh, so that that is gonna uh, uh, you know have several examples uh, from that, um, and uh, and I think I have a few other examples from from the Paradigm case, uh, which is a, a beautifully lit film. Uh, um, uh, that's really has has some gorgeous uh, photography, uh, uh, and and I, I I I don't mention Notorious hardly at all except for one scene. Uh, um, uh, but, but this, this, um, uh, you know, I think, I think the, the glamour photography is, is, is really quite strong, uh, uh in Notorious. Before, uh, we connected, we discussed a little bit the issue of, um, a back projection in Notorious, which is truly omnipresent in the film. Many, many of the scenes, uh, especially the intimate scenes of conversations are shot against a rear, rear projection. And uh, we, we uh, commented on how our students, when we teach film uh, here in Warsaw and on other occasions, 
um, people born, let's say, in 21st century are extremely uh, reluctant uh, toward, I mean, they, they, they immediately see the artifice, they valorize the artifice as something, you know, unwanted, uh, bad, and they don't, they, they are reluctant even to enter the world of the film because they immediately sense that this is, this is fake, you know, they are, they are not really in Rio. Um, is this your? What are your thoughts on on the usage of rare projection in in this film and films of the period? And maybe do you have a chance to uh, discuss it with your students? Perhaps maybe something really changed in our perception mechanism between 1946 and 2022. Yeah, I I think maybe I'll make a confession that I'm I'm. I'm maybe a little with the students here sometimes. <laughs> you know, I think uh, I remember when I was young, you know, watching North by Northwest, uh, <laughs> you know, that the whole, all that stuff driving over the cliff and, and whatnot, you know, and my whatever 12 year old self was like, look at this back projection, it's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I, I think I kind of know where they're, where they're coming from. Um, you know, I, I've, I, 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 I'm to the point that I've I've watched enough movies that I I, I almost sort of don't mm. don't notice it uh, as as much as I as I used to. Uh, um, yeah, so uh, uh, and, and maybe I'm hoping my students will eventually get to the point where where they can uh, uh, overlook it. Uh, I, I do discuss it a little bit in in the book um but but it's 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 not kind of a major topic uh, uh in in the book uh i i try to make the case that it, maybe occasionally it can be it can sort of add to the film mm -hmm. uh thematically um but but i i i i don't know i don't know i think there's a part of me that maybe doesn't quite believe it uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know there's a part of me that sometimes is thinking well if they had gone to Rio, probably would have been a little bit better. Uh, um, yeah, a, so maybe I'm a little with the students on that. No, that, that's a great point. That's a great point. Uh, I have like related question uh, in a way to, to the to this one and the, the previous one. Uh, let's, let's try to maybe um, use our imagination because one of the two things that I found fascinating as a Polish reader, which uh, and, and Polish film studies are, of course, I would say they are generally very different from um, American ones. Of course, we translate and read a lot, a lot of uh, American stuff, but still, for example, in Poland, this idea of Hollywood films being so invisible is still persistent. You know, it's one of the myths that you are trying to destroy. And that's, I think, you do it in a great way. You're uh, in many places, you mentioned that, you know, it's not invisible, it's just very subtle. And, and I love this idea that you are trying to describe the subtlety the invisibility, which is really style. subtlety of the style, and I love it. So, kind of a, another trick question. Uh, Notorious is certainly not the case. It's not the case of some of the mature John Ford's movies or 1930s movies that you described that are very subtle. In terms of lighting and some some camera movements, it's not a subtle thing. You notice that. You you notice that. So what's your attitude towards this kind of... I know that you're now writing a book about film noir, which is great news. Uh, another genre which is not, you know, subtle in the way we are discussing, that you, you cannot, you don't see it. So uh, 
what's your take on movies like Notorious, which uh, do not hide their style? Do you have some preferences? Uh, are you enjoying the subtle movies more? Yeah, yeah I like them. Uh, I like movies that don't uh, that don't uh, hide hide their style. Uh, yeah, I. I I, I think I, I touched on this issue of in, invisibility in, in the first book about lighting, but I think I was maybe a little kind of uh, overly delicate uh, with it. And so I tried to get the point across, um, I think, more fully in the in the dynamic frame uh, book that 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 I I just don't think invisibility is a very helpful concept in, mm -hmm. in understanding mm -hmm. Hollywood films. Um, and, and I think it partly has to do with my sense um that that i agree with the contention that hollywood films are are very concerned with storytelling and and to me storytelling by definition involves you know a storyteller you know which which you know could be an auteur but it could also just be a collaborative group of of filmmakers um uh and and you know it can be more or less subtle and and i actually enjoy uh, you know, subtle touches, but I also enjoy uh, mm -hmm. sort of bold uh, touches. Um, if I had to pick, I'd probably say I tend to prefer the bold films. Uh -huh. uh, um, you know, I uh, I mean, thinking about contemporary filmmakers, I like Alfonso Cuarón, uh, <laughs> who I think uh, uh, frequently works in that very bold mode. Um, oh, you wrote a book about Harry Potter and yes. the Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah, yeah. I wrote a book about Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and I'm also a big admirer of Children of Men. Uh, um, Roma, I like quite a bit. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I do tend to gravitate toward toward bold uh, stylists. Mm -hmm. Gravity, speaking of Quaron, right? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, Notorious, um, you, you, you know, the lighting is stylized, um, uh, you know, and, and certainly the camera work throughout is, is, is highly mm -hmm. stylized. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned before, you know, the bit with, you know, the wind in her hair, <laughs> you know, that's that's just such a bold uh -huh. uh, stylistic device. I, uh, I have three short questions. I will just <laughs> ask them in succession. First of all, is Notorious a noir film? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I'm in, in, in my book about film noir, I tend to try and define the category very broadly. Um, uh, I, I, so I am inclined to count it. I, I'd probably say, um, you know, the the bleakness of the romance mm -hmm. is is really extraordinary in in Notorious. Um, how she's so in love with him and he is so cold mm -hmm. <laughs> to her. Um, that that kind of bleakness seems seems of a piece with with mm -hmm. noir. Um, stylistically there are a number of affinities um but the other genre that that it's that it's interacting with would be the gothic uh, uh you know a, a woman um marries a man whom in this case she knows well but still she doesn't know everything about him he you know there's still something mysterious about him mm -hmm. and then she has to investigate him uh and that investigation often takes the form of investigating the house uh, and like the the secret rooms in the house, uh, I mean that 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 certainly seems like very common in the gothic mm. film. So noir noir gothic noir gothic noir gothic yes okay. yeah contemporary <laughs> noir gothic. Uh, second question: Last year, Guillermo del Toro made a remake of Nightmare Alley from 1947. Mm. So uh, 
Can you imagine a remake of Notorious and who should direct it and who should be the DOP on it if it was to be remade nowadays? Okay, huh. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have to think about that one. I mean, I mean, uh -huh. immediately I'm, 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 I mean, Guillermo del Toro would not be a bad choice uh, for that. <laughs> He's a Hitchcock scholar, right, as well? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. um, no, and, I, I, you know, his, his movies, uh, yeah, in terms of their tonalities, they have that noir tonality of, of you know, just a really rich, dark shadows. Um, but then with that, that layer of color, uh, where the color um, uh, is just so meaningful and like the progression of color uh, as, uh, as the story is progressing, um that that seems uh that seems like something that hitchcock would be very sympathetic to mm. uh, uh you know mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm sure you'll you'll be getting into this you know later yes actually two two episodes from now yes 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 <laughs> you'll be getting to that very very soon um uh uh, uh but yeah del toro's usage of color does seem mm. uh uh you know influenced by or at least continuing this tradition that that i think of mm. um uh, as, as Hitchcock, okay, uh, okay, um, and and so I think he would he would be a a, a terrific choice, um, and I I will say we we watched, I was really looking forward to Nightmare Alley, uh, uh, the remake, and I, I I ended up preferring I think I prefer the first one, mm, the first, um, uh, but maybe it's um, I don't know, maybe it was a question of pacing or tone. Um, but, but some things, some things I thought got, uh, worked, worked really, really well. The last question that I have is both to both of you. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I, I actually, when I was traveling here today, I was thinking about it. I love the key scene in Notorious, but I thought to myself today, is it realistic for her to hold this key in her hand at this party? <laughs> like, is it realistic? Wouldn't she have it in actually in like a pocket or mm -hmm. something? So, uh, like, does it even matter? Or in, if, in her bra, actually. Or, that would or be in her, like in her, you know, lingerie, wherever. But she's actually holding it in her hand. So the, the question is, does it matter, right? I mean, what's more important in this moment? Like the stylistic flourish or the common sense question? Like, would I be holding this key in my hand? You know? I don't know what you think. For me, it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think that Hitchcock, um, yeah. I just think Hitchcock liked, you know, bold visual ideas. Um, and, you know, if the effect is bold enough, you know, I think we can, I, I think we can, you can just sort of get away, get away with it. Um, you know, and, and in that moment, I'm just, you know, I'm so curious about where's this camera going mm -hmm. and I see the key, um, uh, you know, that's, that's such a sort of great reveal. Uh, and then the story just keeps moving. Uh, uh, you know, and and it really heads into I think one of one of the best suspense sequences in in all of Hitchcock uh, for mm -hmm. me, uh, the cellar sequence. Mm -hmm. So I just think the pacing you don't have time uh, while you're watching it for the first time uh, to say oh that that doesn't that doesn't really, mm. really work. Yeah, exactly. The fact that you were thinking about it somewhere on your way. Uh, yes, outside not, not of during this, the know, screening. Not during the screening. During I think that's screening. that's points. Yeah. Um, and and I, 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 I one more thought on this on, on yeah, realism yeah, yeah. of of it's just the detail of when he was working with 
Ernest Lehman on the screenplay for North by Northwest. Mm -hmm. You know, I, it seems like, and I've looked at some of the, the Lehman papers, which are in, in, in Austin, a, a couple hours away. Uh, and I guess they, they must've bounced around lots of ideas. And, and one of the ideas, uh, you know, the idea of, uh, a scene set in a Detroit, you know, car factory, uh, and that they're like building the car, you know, bit by bit in the factory. And then at the end, they open the door and a body falls out. Uh, and it's like, it makes no sense at all. Uh, but it's just, it's just such, has such a dramatic impact that, uh, you know, I kind of wish they had done it. As yeah, exactly. I mentioned the, the, the imagination, which I wanted us to use for, for that case, but I didn't get to the point yet. So, so now um, another thing which I find so, you know, impressive and important for me in your work is, for example, the way you describe the, the, the shift from uh, academic ratio to widescreen, right? It's like, it's mind blowing the way, you know, you, you, you pile up the, the problems that cinematographers and directors had. So another short question, do you think Notorious would work? Uh, I'm not even saying about color, but let's say in widescreen, right? In, in a movie which is so, I, I, I think one of the ways you can show it to students is to precisely discuss the, the, that ratio. I mean, how well it works in that particular piece of fiction. So do you think, what would happen with this film if it were to be shot in widescreen? Yeah, I, I, I think it would lose something. And I, and I think it would lose something in the close-ups. Uh, I don't know. There's just something about a close-up in four by three where just the, the face just dominates the entire frame. And then even if you do a big close-up in widescreen, which you know would have been hard in the 50s, you've still got all this other screen uh, to worry about. Um, I just I just don't know if we we would have that that. I, you know, I, you'd be gaining something, but I do mm -hmm. think you'd be losing this quality of, of the close-ups. Um, you know, and I'm thinking of, of, you know, at the end of the cellar scene, uh, when they kiss, uh, uh, and those close-ups of Ingrid Bergman are just so powerful. Uh, um, you know, that, that her love, uh, for Devlin has, has just, uh, uh, been, you know, she's just so reminded of that. And then he pushes her away. Um, it's just such a devastating moment uh, mm -hmm. in, in the scene. Uh, uh, and having that, that big close-up, uh, it gives it so much of its power. Yeah. And Ingrid Bergman, such an exceptional actor. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, just has to be one of the best actors. We started this conversation today actually by acknowledging that this is a really great performance. It's just really, really great. Really yeah, yes, yes. definitely. So it's good to know that you're in the in the club, let's say, with us. So uh, on a more personal note, um, if you were to write a, a monograph, for example, I mean, what are your preferences, your favorite filmmakers? Because you are very, I would say, um, picky when it comes to your... You gave a great number of examples, which is awesome. It, it, you can feel, the reader feels that you, you saw it all. You saw all the all important classical movies like Peter Bogdanovich did in the 60s. That's something you did. But I, I wonder, like on a more personal note, like your favorite filmmakers, uh, movies, would Hitchcock be somewhere close or not really? You're just, you know, interested in, in, in his movies because they are part of the, 
of Hollywood history, but he's not really touching you personally. What would be the, the case here? Yeah, her favorite. Yeah. I, I rate Hitchcock very highly. Um, yeah, I certainly. Um, I've seen I've seen most of the Hitchcock films. Maybe I haven't seen all of them, but I've 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 seen most of them. And even when I was young, I had seen um uh you know very large number of them so i've been into hitchcock ever since i was i was a teenager uh, uh so i rate him very highly um of uh other filmmakers i i i i do like very visual filmmakers i i, I like spielberg uh quite a bit um and and here's a filmmaker who i think is very hitchcocky and who i like a lot uh m night Shyamalan. Uh, mm. <laughs> Uh, you've mentioned um, the idea of writing a monograph. I, I have toyed with the idea of writing oh. a monograph on, on M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, he's a very inconsistent director. I mean, I think he's he's definitely made some some bad movies, but I think when he's on, um, I, I think he's 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 really terrific. Mm. Uh, you know, Glass I liked quite a bit, and um, mm. uh, Split. What about Split? One of my recent favorites. Split. Okay, yeah, yeah, uh -huh, <laughs> yeah. That split was also was also strong. Yeah. Well, we'll be we'll be looking for, forward to that, and we're looking forward to your book on on noir. And uh, again, thank you so much for finding the time. Uh, this was really a great honor for us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, good luck with your projects, and thank you for your books and for everything that you are doing. Okay, thank you so much, and I will continue listening to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See you. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Wow, I'm so happy that we had this occasion to speak to Professor uh, Patrick Keating. Uh, I, I Really, I mean, we, we need to stress this. We are fans of uh, those books. I mean, I, I read only the Dynamic Frame, which is, I think, probably in my top 10 of books mm. ever about films. So it was a great conversation. And uh, how about you? Like, do, do, do we have any... Uh, do we have anything to add or um, is this really the pinnacle are we uh, looking forward to any other films in the 40s or is this the pinnacle of the 40s Hitchcock I think it, it is I right? think it is oh definitely yeah because definitely. we are in store we have fascinating films like Parenting Case uh, Rope uh, Under Capricorn in which we will see Ingrid Bergman returning and let's say stage right as mm -hmm. the ending of the decade but none of those films are as accomplished, I would say, as Notorious, right? No, de definitely not. And and I think like coming towards the the end of the episode, I uh, I'm a bit afraid as a viewer to uh, study, you know, perfect films. Uh, of course, that's a problem because some of Hitchcock's are are perfect. But for example, Rear Window, uh, I know it's also one of your very favorites. Yes. It's one mm -hmm. of the films that, although you can say whatever it means, that it's perfect. You somehow want to inhabit that world for and again and again, and I have this feeling towards Rear Window, um, Psycho, I, I, I should say as well, uh, and so on. And I think it's the first Notorious is the first Hitchcock film that, although it's perfect, it also creates a world that I want to inhabit for a longer period of time. So I, I was a bit worried, you know, like uh, coming back to this film, reading a lot about it. Will, will I lose something, you know, like some some of the pleasure? Of getting back to Notorious, I think I think no. I um, I still think uh, maybe it's part of our cerebral response uh, to the beauty of this film. But also, as we are stressing in this episode, and I think it's it's so important. And Patrick Keating, you know, even mentioned that you know Ingrid Bergman, right? I mean, that's the, the real heart of this film. So I think 
to all the formalists out there, I think the reason why it works so well is precisely because you have perfect, you know, technical perfection, narrative perfection, and so on. But also you have something very touching at the center of this film. And probably, you know, th this is what makes real masterpieces. So I am happy, you know, like to, to make a, a simple point, I'm happy that Notorious is not only about technical perfection. You know, it's not only a film to study and admire, you know, its patterns uh, and perfect style, but also it, it's a really touching film. And I agree with, with um, David Thompson from, have you seen his book about movies? That is probably the first Hitchcock film of this kind, like deeply personal on some level, probably deeply felt. And I think it's the taste of things to come that will have similar feelings uh, maybe some of us, some of the viewers, when we'll be watching his 1950s movies, hmm. that you want to come back to this film. In, 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 my, in my case, it's the first film of this kind. I admire Shadow of a Doubt, uh, Foreign Correspondent, Rebecca, but these are not really movies that I feel this, this need to come back like from time to time. Notorious is. It's a film I'll be coming back to. I agree, and uh, I will be coming back to the film. I think it's really exceptional, probably in my top five. Hitchcock Top 5. Um, I just want to mention that if you want to get the taste of how daring this film is, you can compare it to other films that were competing for Oscars that year, 19, next year actually, 1947. Uh, that was the year when the best years of our lives won the best picture. So a very noble film about uh, post-war America. But, and yet, you know, years light away from this complex erotic turf of um, treachery ridden Rio de Janeiro. So, you know, this was the year of William Wyler, of Sam Goldwyn, of this wholesome, uh, also adult, uh, but uh, not even remotely sexual film, uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. And uh, in Ingrid Bergman, I think, was robbed of a nomination. She wasn't even nominated for this film. Olivia de Havilland won for To Each His Own. And uh, in Best Supporting Actor category, because this film had only two nominations. Best Supporting Actor, in which Claude Rains got defeated by Harold Russell, uh, so the actor from The Best Years, uh, who was actually a war veteran who lost his hands in the, in the war effort. And, and this is, I think, the scandalous category, Best Original Screenplay, mm. because Ben Kecht should have won. He competed against the brilliant Jacques Prévert, uh, who wrote Children of Paradise, and yet the Oscar went to The Seventh Veil, which is a completely forgotten film, and really, I mean, this is the one award that mm -hmm. the film should have won. I'm not even mentioning... Uh, unless mentioning unless the, it, maybe it should have been nominated in simply the best screenplay or adapted screenplay category, because there is, you know, there is a basis to, to Notorious, uh, mm. Erased to a large part, but it's technically it yeah, is anecdote, based on anecdote, a, yeah. like a spy anecdote. You know, it's you can also say it was based on Mata Hardy. Uh, no, no, no. Like <laughs> yeah, but there was, was a story like the, the, in the Saturday yeah, yeah, Evening yeah. Post. Exactly, exactly. Right, but uh, well, the the it's it's a shame that it wasn't more mm. recognized in those terms, especially after the wonderful success, Oscar success of Rebecca. But still, uh, well, we hope. You enjoyed this episode, uh, Sebastian. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, just the, the last point, because uh, uh, when, when we are talking about such a film, uh, which is so you know there are so many comments about it and so on, I was thinking, well, what can I add to the conversation? Uh, I had I had just one idea because I, I'm a sucker for Cold War movies, spy stories. Uh, although it's not technically a Cold War movie, 
uh, try to think about the, the many may ways in which it kind of is. It's almost like a Cold War story in terms of, you know, like I was thinking about John Le Carre novels, like which are very morally ambiguous. Uh, so there is no Cold War yet, right? Let's say 40, 45, 46. Technically, it's not that period in, in, in world history, uh, but it's, it's getting there. So uh, in one way, Notorious, you know, was ahead of the time because of the bomb McGuffin. But also you can I think you can read this story and you can watch it as a kind of a Cold War story with, you know, uh, special forces being kind of morally corrupt uh, with generally like this this level of ambiguity uh, shadow and you know like it's it's opening a new chapter it suddenly it doesn't feel like a World War II movie right there is I think it's very Cold Warish, which maybe was part of its appeal you know uh, in the 50s and 60s I don't know well I would say it's a it's a pre-Cold War Gothic um, made at the time when Cold War categories were just being defined mm. because I think to have a Cold War film you need to have Soviet Union and you need to have communism. <laughs> Here you don't have it because there is not yet the sense that there are those two opposites, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union. And yet I would, yeah, I would agree that it's like this pre-freeze. Mm. You know? Yes, because you're totally right. Mm. Of course, we don't have Soviet Union, but only this one element that let's say world war ii spies it could be fun and exciting but cold war spies uh mm. you know in this mature stories it's 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 like as i mentioned like like Carre, like like this kind of adaptations it's uh full of anxiety uh despair mm. loneliness and so on and in this way i think the image of spice that's what i wanted to maybe come with this point that the image of spice is very cold cold warish because it's there is not much glamour Cary grant is mm. you know a very dark character uh bergman is tormented in this way, I think mm -hmm. it points to this Cold War sensibility. Maybe, but I think still there's a crucial difference mm -hmm. because you don't yet have this very Lecarian feeling of a stalemate. You mm -hmm. know, that mm -hmm. we've been in this so mm -hmm. long, you know, we, we don't see the end of it. You know, will it end in annihilation? Will it ever end? Mm -hmm. This is something that constitutes the Lecare ennui, I would say. Here you really I, I think it's a genuine film film of its moment because they don't know mm -hmm. like what will happen actually hollywood should have made films like this in the 30s when there were mm -hmm. nazi spies and you know but the hollywood studios were generally avoiding this subject with some exceptions uh, so this is like a late anti-nazi pre-cold war like it's exactly in the middle between those two eras uh, of course hitchcock is uh, such a great artist that yes i think he he can already sense that this will be the you know uh, the sort of direction that film things will be will be going and uh, you know I don't know there's something also um, like like almost operatic about mm -hmm. this film you know something uh, also Ingrid Bergman brings a touch of European Cary Grant as well I mean all of the, Claude Rains. none of those Claude leading Rains. actors are American you know uh, exactly. Claude Rains is a British guy so is Cary, Cary Grant and she's Swedish so there that's there's a touch of Europe and by the way just yes I, I forgot to mention this when we we're talking to Patrick my favorite shot in the film that just tells you about subjectivity and also about Hitchcock being a complete master of his language is this shot of those five Nazis kissing her hand in sequence uh, because you first of all they are perfectly cast you can sense this unwanted intimacy she doesn't really want their lips you know on her hand and yet they are very courteously very slowly bestowing those five kisses and you just crawl in your skin because you don't want to be touched 
by those creeps <laughs> and exactly. and and this is a simple scene it's one shot but and yet it's yes. perfect and hitchcock knows that by placing us in her subjectivity we know that she's being violated at this moment she's go she's going on because she's on a mission of course but these men are really creepy mm -hmm. dangerous and you can almost smell their sweat or their bed cologne as they are approaching her. So I think this is the essence of Hitchcock. Exactly. And Patrick Keating mentioned that Hitchcock would never go as far as Lady in the Lake, but this is precisely the Lady in the Lake-like yeah. scene. Exactly this this prolonged shot when this POV starts to be, as you mentioned, it's, it's creepy. Yes. And it's Lady in the Lake minus the simple-mindedness of Robert Montgomery. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, both as a said, performer and director. Because he yeah. said, you know, oh yeah, so they will look into the camera and yeah. then we will feel it. No, here they don't look at the camera. They look a little bit, you know, off the angle. And yet you are in Ingrid Bergman's skin in that moment. So I think this is something. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's another scene which mm. kind of encapsulates the, the power yeah. of the whole film. Yeah, absolutely. And well, uh, we are uh, now wrapping up this episode. We are already lining up so great, some great episodes and guests for you. Uh, we have some in really exciting guests uh, coming up. And next time we'll talk about a film which is not in the Hitchcock canon, I would say, Paradigm mm -hmm. Case, mm -hmm. still a film of many interests. Uh, and then the big break in our podcast, the first color film that Hitchcock made, Rope. Oh, that would be great. And yes. first independently produced. 1948. So, and this on many levels would be a fascinating film. Yeah. So, uh, please, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, rate us on iTunes. This is a very small effort. I mean, it's a big effort <laughs> to, for us to make the... Uh, but manpower is limited. Yeah, the manpower <laughs> is limited. So every single rating on iTunes makes this podcast more likely to be discovered by other Hitchcock fans. So please share, please rate. And just uh, the big thanks to one of our listeners, talking about our listeners and fans. Uh, Veiko Suvanto, thank you for helping with gathering materials for this episode. Yes, uh, thank you so much. And uh, well, again, if you like the episode, please uh, like our fan page on Facebook. Please share the episodes with your Hitchcock-minded friends. And the next time we will hear each other will be on Paradigm Case. Uh, we are recording this in, on the last day of August in Warsaw. I'm Michał Oleszczyk and I'm joined by Sebastian Smolinski. Foreign Correspondents. Deeper into Hitchcock. <laughs>